listening to that Jesus podcast. Hey guys, just a little update on the India Food Project. Thanks again to everyone who's been so generous in donating. We've been able to get food to hundreds of families so far, and we're going to continue sending money, getting food to those families. Uh, Prime Minister Modi has extended the lockdown until May 3rd, although it is loosening up in a few ways now. So we're sending out smaller amounts of money to each family now, about $13 worth of food, because hopefully the the time it needs to cover is a little bit shorter, and hopefully we're able to hit uh, quite a bit more people through that. Uh, But I know that one of the concerns people always have when they are donating is, you know, will the money actually go where they say it's going to go? And I I wish I had a a 501c3 organization set up for this, but it it happens so quickly that, of course, we don't have that. So I'm I'm doing a few things to provide accountability on on my end and also on Pastor Arvin's end. Uh, Hopefully in in about a week I'll have it set up so that you can donate through my church. Um, But until then, you can continue sending money to my PayPal. You can just send me a, a message, and I'll get you that information and until we have it set up through my church, I'm, I'm just sending screenshots to my pastor uh, with, with the money coming in and going out. And also, if you have a larger amount of money you want to send directly to Pastor Arvin in India, you can use the app that I've been using, which is called TransferWise, and I can get you the, the bank information for uh, his organization, Divine Vision, and you can wire the money directly there as well. And so on his end also, I've been asking him to record the names of each family that gets food as well as their phone number so that I can have someone from India call a few of those families to make sure uh, they're getting food and and provide accountability on that end. So those are just a a few things we're doing. Uh, Like I said, there's still a lot of needs there, a lot of people going hungry. Um, He's been coming across people just laying in the streets with with no food, and and it really is heartbreaking. Um, But we're doing everything we can for them during this difficult time. And, and once again, thank thank you everyone who's been so generous with that. My guest today is Dr. Dennis Edwards. Dr. Edwards has a PhD in biblical studies from the Catholic University of America. He's the author of a commentary on 1 Peter, as well as the more recent book, What is the Bible and How Do We Understand It? Thanks for coming on the podcast, Dennis. Well, Titus, it really is my pleasure to be with you, and uh, you're grateful for the conversation. Thank you. Yeah, so on, on this podcast, there's about seven foundational values that we're trying to explore, and one of them is a commitment to the Scriptures, and that's the topic you're tackling in your latest book, which is just a, a really small, accessible book introducing people to the Bible and, and uh, a, a great take on on how we should understand it, what lens we should view it through. Um, so, just to start off with, I I know that when whenever we talk about what the Bible is and how we view it, the the biggest question that generally comes up is inerrancy. You know, that's a that's sort of a um, a buzzword that people often use to determine who's in and who's out. And and so I'd like I know you have a, a nuanced position on that. So could you maybe give us your understanding of inerrancy and, and how it relates to the Bible? 
Yeah, I'll do my best. I I came up uh, in my younger years and then in my early seminary studies with a with a teaching of inerrancy that was um, based on a scripture that says it's impossible for God to lie. So the idea was anything in the scriptures that could potentially be historically inaccurate or or um, or factually uh, uh, inaccurate or something we just don't understand, um, it could not. Um, we had to somehow figure out a way to make it make sense for us. Otherwise, we'd view it as a lie from God or a contradiction. For example, um, when in the book of Joshua, when it talks about the sun standing still, right? I mean, that's a classic example. Um, nowadays, we understand that it's the earth that's moving around the sun. But the idea that the sun is moving in the sky, it looks that way to us. And an errantist, somebody who says there's no errors, would have to say that um, our science is wrong and, that, and that, that the sun is actually moving around the earth. But that's not the case. Right. So we could back ourselves in a corner with with certain views of inerrancy. So I think what we're trying to what I'm trying to say and others who share my view is that the Bible is is. Um, not trying to be this science book is not trying to be a math book. It's, it's sometimes not even trying to be a history book. But so I don't hold it to the same kind of standard that I might hold uh, science experiments in a laboratory. Um, so that's maybe that's going a little farther afield. But the idea is there are certain things that are literally stated in the Bible, like trees clapping hands. And we know trees don't have hands. So if you're saying, I'm, you know, you believe in inerrancy and you want to be literal, you you can back yourself in a corner. So I think the Bible is communicating to us divinely, but it's not uh, a science or math book, for example. Yeah, that's good. And and I think with the example of the sun standing still, a lot of inerrantists would probably say that's a figure of speech that they they actually maybe that they actually knew that the sun did not rotate around the earth or, or something like that, but it's just a figure of speech. But I think the way you're looking at it, it makes a lot more sense of the text that, hey, the, the Bible wasn't meant to give us an update on our cosmology. Well, it's fine if we call it a figure of speech, but my point is that if you, the way we have viewed inerrancy is we keep changing the definition. I mean, tell Copernicus. I mean, the church uh, practically branded him a heretic for for claiming that the sun was was the one that was still for all intents and purposes and the earth moving around it. So they they had a view of inerrancy that was yeah. ready to, you know, destroy this guy. Now we might have nuanced our view. So that's so my point is people who take on the label inerrancy find themselves having to nuance it, having to uh, massage it. And I just feel like it's not necessarily helpful if you have to keep adjusting your definitions. Um, but I do think that um, what you just got at, the fact that there's figures, figures of speech, is really the point, right? We're taking the Bible literarily, even mm -hmm. if at times not literally, as I've heard other scholars say. Yeah. And, and one thing that I've, I've sometimes told people, and I'm, I'm curious about your take on this, is that the theological claims that the Bible is putting forward are inerrant. You know, it... However, it wasn't meant to give us inerrant science. What, what's your thought on that? 
Well, again, I feel like it's, I mean, that's, that may be true. I may be true. I, I certainly don't have an argument with it. I just, I'm just finding it not as helpful to use the vocabulary. Mm. Although I do feel, like I said, people keep nuancing the vocabulary because I think there's something just, you know, maybe personally at stake, uh, a fear that if we don't use that word inerrant, then we're, then we're on the so-called slippery slope that we're going to say it's might as well throw it all out. I, I'm not particularly uh, worried about slippery slopes, but I do think that, so I tend not to use it, but a lot of, um, I mentioned this in the little book that certain institutions and seminaries and organizations prefer a word like infallible. The idea that um, the Bible doesn't lead us into error in, 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 in matters of faith and practice um, and, and our knowledge of God. So I, I like that word. That's fine. Um, and I think you probably get a sense even in the little book. I, I wasn't I tried not to get hung up on certain words, mm-hmm. but but I do find that in my my faith journey, I've been in Christian circles, mostly evangelical ones. And there is a tendency to want to quantify and and be able to um, uh, describe with with certain key words what we believe. And and I find and this is you know maybe not true of everyone, but I find the my, an issue with that is when those words get get attacked or discussed or massaged, then people get a little more nervous about their faith. And what what we should be able to do, I think, is separate out our descriptors from the actual thing. <laughs> you know, yeah. we, we want God. We want to know God. We want to know God uh, through the word. We want to know God through our experience uh, with Jesus and the spirit. And that to me is more important than some of the language that we're using. I mean, this is this is what we do all the time, even trying to understand Jesus. We 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 find ourselves falling short of words to describe uh, this being who is fully human and fully divine. And you know, we sing about it about him, we write about him, we we imagine, but it's hard. Same with the Trinity, right? I mean, these are hard concepts. So I think rather than worry about particular vocabulary words, let's let's think about what what the function of this Bible is. That's yeah. that's what I'm trying to say, I think. Yeah. So one thing you, you get into in the book is a Christocentric hermeneutic, which I'm guessing is a fancy way of saying uh, interpreting and understanding the scriptures in light of Jesus. Could Could you talk about that a little bit? Yes. Now, I did use that term, and then and there is a glossary in the book, just to be clear, that I don't want to fall into the same trap I'm accusing others of, of using fancy terms and then being wedded to them. But we yeah. do have a glossary. Uh, all the books in the series have a glossary to explain. And I use that because that term because it's particular, particularly popular in, or has been in, in um, Anabaptist circles, and more and more evangelicals who might not even see themselves as Anabaptists also believe that there's a Christ-centered way of seeing the Bible. So that's kind of what we get at. But Christ-centered in a couple of ways. One is that the Bible is pointing to Christ from the uh, Older Testament or the Hebrew Bible or uh, or the First Testament, how we want to refer to uh, Israel's scriptures, and the New Testament are pointing to Christ, and Christ is central to the message. But also Christ-centered in that the Bible is trying to get us to be like Christ. <laughs> so there's a yeah. there's a, a centrality in that sense, right? Ethically as well as, you know, the information of the of the writings. Yeah. 
So what are some scriptures that actually point us toward understanding the Bible in that way, especially in the New Testament? Well, there's well, there's a few things. I mean, one is is the um, is the is Paul's um, words to Timothy in three in Second Timothy three uh, uh, fifteen uh, and three. I got it right here in front of me in three um, sixteen. But I'll go to three fifteen first. He says, "All Scripture is inspired by God. It's useful for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness." Um, well, actually, let me go on to 17 so that everyone who belongs to God may be proficient, equipped for every good work. There's this practicality in there. Right. But in the whole section that I'm reading from without reading all those verses, the idea of this teaching, reproof and correcting and training and righteousness is so that we be like Christ. I mean, there's mm-hmm. a whole sense of that in the passage. He says it in verse 12, just a few verses earlier, all who want to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. But the whole spirit of here is of of being like Christ, living this godly life. So part of that entail is is what the scriptures do. They point us toward that godly life. And there's many places like that in the New Testament. I mean, I I I, I think um, even without pointing to uh, one or two verses, if we looked at every single letter of the New Testament, they're all written to communities of people to try to help them be like Jesus, if you will, to to live in ways that where they uh, uh, put aside um, uh, factionalism and evil. This is first first Corinthians, for example. Right. I want you to uh, not be divided that you're following after this person, that person. But Christ is not divided. So we follow Christ. So there's there's that kind of sense. Um, I think I want to end one one comment here. I, I you might find in my answer that I still am reluctant to tick off Bible verses to try to prove a particular point. I am yeah. trying to get at a spirit of something there's a movement. So my last example would be Jesus on the Emmaus Road at the end of Luke. When when they when these two disciples don't know um, that they're talking to Jesus and they're explaining to Jesus what happened, <clears throat> right? Jesus mm-hmm. comes back and and he explains to them about himself. And it says, and Luke says that that um, starting with the, uh, the law and Moses and, and the prophets, he just talks about himself. Now, Luke is not giving us a list of Bible verses, right? He's not saying, and in this verse, he taught that. And in this verse, he taught that. But somehow, by commenting on the Old Testament, Jesus is pointing to himself. And I think that's sort of a classic text in what I mean by Christocentric, that the Lord himself is pointing to the Old Testament to talk about himself as Messiah. So, yeah, that's the spirit of what I'm trying to get at. Yeah, that's good. Another one that popped into my mind here as you're talking is where Jesus said, you examine the scriptures because in them you think you have eternal life, but these are the scriptures that point to me. You know, and sure, that's good. And in, in Hebrews also, it, you know, says, of course, that he's the exact representation of the Father. And so, yeah, like you said, it's it's a motif that runs throughout the entire scriptures. Well, actually, that one that you point up, pointed out just now from Hebrews, thanks for mentioning it. That one I actually do uh, deal with a bit in the book because I think that's a that is a helpful one. And not not just about um, a Bible verse that says Jesus is is the uh, is the. Um, is the way we read the scripture, but to say Jesus is is actually the best representative we have of God, right? And uh, 
and all, and he is the hypostasis, this fancy word that we get in theology, hypostatic union. He is the, he is this, um, he shares this essence of what God is. So yes, thanks for mentioning that. That's right at the very beginning of Hebrews. Yeah. So what are some of the practical implications of this? We say we, we understand the scriptures through Jesus. How is that going to affect our, our day-to-day life? Yeah, thank you. I tell a story in the book that without trying to, you know, make somebody look bad or assassinate their character or anything, I just, there were certain people that popped into my mind because I've been a pastor for a long time. But this guy I met before I was a pastor, and he he was a difficult person for people to love in church, a hard person. And I won't elaborate on that, but we've all met people that are you know, hard to love. <laughs> but his heart, his harshness came in his in his self-righteousness. He would all, he always had the Bible open, always reciting verses, always correcting people, but nobody wanted to be around him. And, and there was this kind of sense that you could know the Bible, but not be living the message of it, you know? Mm-hmm. So I think when we all, that's the other part of the Christocentric or Christ-centered way of reading the Bible is that we actually want to be like Jesus. So we read the Bible, not just the Gospels, but the Gospels certainly give us a picture of Jesus. But we want to we want to read them so that we we behave differently. Yeah, that's good. So one thing that has always troubled me, especially in, in the last four or five years in my life and still troubles me, is some of the texts of Scripture that uh, to me and, and to especially to 21st century Westerners ap- appear to be fairly problematic. And I know that you're friends with with Greg Boyd and, and he deals a lot with some of the Old Testament passages on divine violence and that sort of thing. So I, I'm curious what your take is on, on that. Let's just start with, with those Old Testament passages that depict God commanding his people to essentially commit genocide. Yeah, well, that's a big, those are big questions. Uh, I mean, Greg wrote a 1,500-page book to, to try to answer it, so, yeah. so I, I'm not sure I'll do justice in a few moments. I'll say a couple of things, though. One is I think Greg is right in in taking us to places like the beginning of Hebrews to say what we know of God, um, we know best in Jesus, you know, or or to that effect. He might not say it just that exact same way. But but Jesus being the representation of of God, what we see in the character of Jesus is is what we should understand about God. So now he goes back to read the Old Testaments and he suggests that when we when we're seeing the violence in the Old Testament, what we're seeing is a human accommodation, really. I mean, it's something where God is is accommodating to, uh, himself for humans. I don't I don't know if that's true or not. I don't know. I, what I take from it is that I don't understand fully the um, reasons why God would either execute divine judgment or have or have Israel carry out um, judgment. I honestly don't know. Uh, what I do say is I don't see it as a license for us today to to exercise the same kind of violence for for more historical reasons. We're not we're not uh, Old Testament Israel. There's no yeah. there's no nation that's God's favorite nation or anything like that. So I don't see human humans today. And this and I but I see Christians do that. I do see Christians, particularly in America, say, well, if they could do it in the Old Testament, then we should be able to do it now. But but the we is not connected. There is a there's a disconnect. So so I'm 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 I don't want to just punt, but I'm basically saying I don't really know 
But if there is something that God is accomplishing in those acts, it, it, it was certainly um, unique and it was uh, um, uh, divine, but it's not. So and, and I'll say it this way. It was descriptive, but not necessarily prescriptive. Yeah. So you're telling me you have a Ph.D. and you still don't understand everything about the Bible? <laughs> I'm being the first to tell you that. And, uh, and the reason why you get a Ph.D. is so you can try to learn and it helps you to learn what you don't know. <laughs> yeah. yeah, that's good. Yeah, I, I read uh, the the popular version of Boyd's book, Cross Vision, or I listened to it, and I, I wanted to be convinced. I wasn't quite convinced, but I'm I'm glad that his perspective exists. I hope he's right. And and like I'm I'm basically where you're at. I I, I don't know, and I, I think that's kind of just where we have to sit until we can ask Jesus face to face. Yeah, I mean, and and that's true of a lot of things. I just think over the over the years we get sensitive to different issues at different times, and we start to scratch our heads. And I would even say this: it's our understanding of God that even has prompted us to ask those questions. If we if we if we didn't think that God was good, if we didn't think that Jesus was pure and right and holy and good, we wouldn't even be asking these questions. <laughs> we, would, we, we would say, oh, God's a mean God, so of course he's going to be wiping out people. But we have a dilemma because it's not what we think we understand about God. And I, I think that actually is because of the Bible. So so we've gotten ourselves in a little bit of a dilemma. But I, but, uh, but I think it's good, though. It's making us say the God that we meet in Jesus how do we understand um, uh, that God in light of the violence? And maybe there's something, as Greg would say it like this, there's something else going on. And and it's our job, perhaps, to find out whatever that is. Yeah. Another issue that I struggle with that's in the Old and New Testament is slavery. And I know you've you've done a, a commentary on First Peter and, and addressed that, because in, in, there's verses on that in First Peter. Um could you give us sort of your understanding of of why, especially Paul and Jesus didn't completely overturn that? Yeah, yeah. I um a few things. I'm actually writing a, a bit more on slavery. I'm gonna I'll have an article out. Uh, well, I don't know when it'll be out, but I'll be, but my deadline is this summer, and <laughs> and I'm doing some work on Colossians and Philemon, which would include the household codes as well as the story of Onesimus. Um, well, I think. Again, it's a complicated topic, and uh, but frankly, the New, the New Testament um, uh, does not address every issue we wish it would address, and uh, and one of those is slavery, and and uh, I, I feel like because the New Testament has not been um, uh, as you know strided in denouncing slavery, it opened the door for people to abuse the Bible. So clearly. You know, my forebears were enslaved because Christians could take Paul's words and use them in an American or European context. The slaves said, you know, it's funny, it's interesting. Slaves did not, re to, a, to a large degree, did not reject Christianity, but they rejected the way slaveholders used Christianity to a large degree. Uh, not everybody, but to a large degree. So I guess what I'm saying is, the, the, the New Testament doesn't address every social issue, but but it gives us the framework to do so. It gives us a sense of what God's community is supposed to look like. It gives us a sense, 
you know, that's Galatians 3.28, right? Neither Jew nor Greek, a slave or free, male or female. So we're getting this sense of what the community of God should look like. And because we get that sense, we can start providing correctives to society's evils. Um, a lot of reasons why the, by, why the early uh, um, move, movement of Christians did not tackle every social uh, ill in the, in the uh, Roman Empire, of course, being a pretty much a blip on the radar. But as time went on, they were. And we are now, you know, the uh, we, we enjoy some of that fruit. Oh, well, but we also enjoy some of the downsides because we still have, for example, white supremacy of people who think that some of the ways that the Bible was used should still be used. I mean, the so-called curse of ham and some other things that put black people in subservient positions. So all that to say is the Bible doesn't address it outright, or let's put it this way, doesn't denounce it outright, mm -hmm. but gives us a picture of what humanity can be like. Yeah, that's good. And maybe we could have you on again sometime to talk more about race relations in America. I know that's something you've, you've dealt with a lot, and I'd love to talk about that more some other time. Um, but, but switching gears here a little bit, uh, I, I engage in Jesus best when I'm, you know, alone with the scriptures and in prayer. Like, that's how I connect with him the, the, the most deeply and the most closely. And, of course, there's also the community of faith and, and discipleship and mission and, and all of that. But, but that's sort of my North Star is, you know, I, I, I want to get alone every day and pray and, and seek God in the scriptures. So... How can we find, you know, the balance between what, what's really important, which is, you know, the technical exegesis of Scripture and, and wrestling through it, understanding what it's communicating, but also finding the, the devotional value of the Bible and that we can actually experience Jesus through these texts? Yeah. Wow, Titus, there's a lot there, and I, I, I really commend you on on that, on your desire personally to spend that time with the Lord. I think that's great. And now so many people are under uh, quarantine or, <laughs> or in their own space. Hopefully many more people will feel that um, same pull. And, and it, and you reflect what the psalmists often talk about their, their relationship with God, being able to cry out with God. Sometimes I get the sense that that was alone, but the fact that we actually have it written down in the Bible um and, and being read to a community means that it didn't just happen alone. It was it was mm. communal. I think way more uh, of the Bible is communal than we actually even give ourselves knowledge of. I, I mentioned this a little bit in the book is that sometimes even just a simple uh, pronoun you in America, we're almost conditioned to see a you as singular when in the New Testament, it's frequently a plural mm. meaning that whole communities are addressed meaning that we interact with each other as part of our faith. So I, I want there to be a both and. I don't want there to be an unnecessary tension that my, my Christian faith is about me and Jesus. It's about us and Jesus. Love God, love your neighbor, even love your enemy. So I do think that there's, that there's, this, that there's a rhythm or a balance or maybe those are the best words. Um, so, yes. I want to read the scripture to know God best in, in that word. But even as I'm trying to seek to understand scripture, one of the dangers, and maybe this is hard for Americans, but one of the dangers is to try to do that only by ourselves. We have way too many stories of people who who uh, led some crazy movements in our, in our society because they had their own personal understanding of what the scriptures were saying. 
Um, the community helps provide correctives, helps to open our eyes to things, helps us to see how we how we are um, uh, uh, communal creatures, how we how how, how we are to love. Uh, you, you mentioned earlier your interest in mission and, and uh, foreign mission or missions in general. Um, and I heard a speaker, I think it was Stanley Harawas, once say that, you know, missionaries were sent out in twos or at least, you know, not solo. He said it wasn't just so that they um, would have backup for their work. It was so that onlookers could see how Christians behave. You know, the idea of, of watching how Christians interact with each other, excuse me, each other is is missional. You know, so so I think that there's something about our our or, or Christian life that has to be shared in community, even our understanding of scripture. So I bring my personal study into conversation like with you and others, because my personal study is is just that. But it really gets tested when we are in conversation with each other. So, yeah, kind of answer. But it's a it's like a big deal to me. So, <laughs> yeah, no, that's good. Thanks for pointing that out. Um yeah, what would you say as we as we kind of wrap up here to someone who's listening to this and they they want to engage with scripture but they just find it to be dreadfully dull. <laughs> oh my. Yeah. Yeah, you know, I <laughs> I'm I'm laughing, but I actually got a text from someone not too long ago asking a similar kind of question and they were just going to start reading the Bible from cover to cover. And I know people who do that and I will commend them. I never want to tell people that don't read the Bible, but I'm not sure that's the best way. You know, sometimes, if you, especially if you don't know the lay of the land, if you don't know the terrain, right, you can start reading. By the time you get to Leviticus, you might start falling asleep. You don't know what's going on. So I do think two things. I mean, um, one is is try to find a reading partner, even if you're not reading at the exact same time. Try to find somebody you can talk to. with. But I would suggest that people uh, um, start somewhere uh, in the New Testament, um, you know, even with a gospel, say like the gospel of Matthew start at the beginning of the New Testament, and then it'll prompt some questions and that can take you back to the Old Testament to start to fill in. So in other words, I think it, you got to see it as a as you're eating that big elephant, you know, one bite at a time. So you don't try to swallow everything right away, but you read some and then go back and reflect on it and then maybe ask some questions and try to fill in some gaps. So um, it's such an important book in, in our civilization, in our world, in our lives, that I don't think we need to take it as something I have to race through and get through and make sure I read this much in a certain amount of time. Now, for some people, that's helpful. I, again, as long as they're reading, I don't I just don't I don't advocate the racing through posture. I advocate the slow chewing posture, I yeah. guess. Like that. <laughs> yeah, that's good. Well, thanks so much for for being willing to to come on and do this interview. I'm sure everyone will find it very helpful. And everyone who's listening, make sure to to go check out uh, Dr. Edwards' books. I can find them on Amazon, of course. And if you enjoyed this episode, one thing you can do to actually help us out is rate and review this podcast on iTunes. Uh, not to to. Uh, stir up more narcissism within me, but rather t helps other people discover the show. It really helps it on, on the algorithms of, of iTunes. So that would really help us out if, if you'd be willing to do this. So yeah, thanks again, Dennis. This has been fun. Yeah, well, thank you. It was my pleasure. <laughs>